Then tell me if this was covered on an early season pod. Maybe I was off that week. Maybe I missed it. Have you discussed the smoke machines and strobe lights in the Blue Jays clubhouse? I don't think so. They're a sight to see. How did you not mention this to me? I witnessed them in action for the first time on Monday. Wow. So you had not seen them in action? I hadn't seen it. Blue Jays don't win a lot of games. Yeah, it's true. It's true. (laughs) So I I hadn't seen it yet. So I walk into the clubhouse after they thump the Kansas City Royals on Canada Day. Walking into the club, man. Strobe lights are going. The lights are off. Like a substantial amount of smoke filling the clubhouse. Yeah. And if you're looking, like in our roles after the game, we're often looking for a specific player. If you're looking, it can be actually hard to find the player in the fog. I don't think that's the intended purpose but it definitely is one of the consequences. Might have to file a BBWAA complaint over this. Like, how are you supposed to talk to anybody about right. their locker after a game? But, like, the thing that stuck me was that, like, planning went into this because these strobe lights are in the ceiling. Like, somebody had to think about how they were going to install these strobe lights. And it's not like a little bit of smoke coming out of, like, a like a little machine from somebody's bar mitzvah or something. Like, there's smoke throughout the entire clubhouse. Somebody spent money and thought about this. It doesn't feel like steam necessarily, but it doesn't smell like smoke. I'm not exactly sure, just fog of some sort. I don't know how you you get that. Smoke machine technology these days uh, is huge. So yeah, the Blue Jays, they're building that culture, man. The young players are building their culture. They're giving out championship belts to the best position player and best pitcher. They're having raves. after wins it strikes me like how different it is than when the clubhouse was kind of run by josh donaldson and and jose bautista right yeah very different i think when you look back at those kind of 17 18 years after the team was good but before they fully entered this rebuild Mm -hmm. there was so much frustration in the clubhouse at all times and we kind of got used to that it happened so gradually and you know, you kind of understand the frustration of the players so much at that point because they were expected to be good and they weren't. But then it's so different this year. Yeah, and I guess the fog machine would be an example of that because that certainly <laughs> wasn't around. When the Blue Jays were, you know, 10 games under 500 in 2017 and they're trying to scrap their way back into the wild card, there's no way they had fog machines around. No, I wonder if it gets old after a while. Or in a year, like if the Blue Jays are good again and they win like 90 times, and it's like, oh, I gotta fire up the fog machine again. I wonder if they'd look for variety. I don't think the celebrations would get old because, uh, yeah, I think each win, there's a little bit of a high for players if, if they come off the field having won. Absolutely. This is, of course, at the letters uh, brought to you by the all-new 2019 Ford Ranger. That's Ben Nicholson-Smith. I'm Arden Zwelling. Uh, the Blue Jays playing a bit better baseball lately. That's a, a bit more watchable baseball. Like, they're still going to lose a lot of games, this team. Like, they still might lose 100. We'll see. Because they just don't have the talent to compete with some of the league's best teams. And they have a lot of games coming up against the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Astros, the Twins. I mean, they're going to play some good baseball teams here. And they're probably going to lose a lot. But I would say that the baseball the Blue Jays are playing right now is just more interesting from a fan's perspective. I would say like I think that you can actually like stay with 
these games. Whereas maybe earlier in the season, fans were looking for the remote at times. Now you're saying, oh, well, you know, Kevin Biggio is about to come up and he's been having like really good plate appearances. And hey, here's Vlad in a spot with, you know, a couple of runners on. And, and you know, like it's just, I think, a lot more watchable now than it has been. Yeah, and I haven't gone through the exercise of trying to find the low point of Blue Jays lineups from 2019, but I am sure that there was like an April the 15th lineup where Alan Hansen and Socrates Brito were all basically hitting yeah. in the lineup together. And of course, at that point, you're not really watching much. Like It's almost like a spring training game after the regulars emerge. Like It's really only the diehards who would be interested at that point. And I think still largely this is a season where mostly it'll be diehard fans watching. But if you have Kevin Biggio and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. not only in the major leagues, but hitting well and contributing, yeah. Danny Jansen with some big hits mixed in there, starting to come around a little bit, that's when you start to get a lot more out of it as a viewer, whether even just from an interest standpoint, because you know they're not going to win a lot. That era, the Burrito Hansen era, feels like a hundred years ago, man. Like and that's that, good for the Jays. That should <laughs> feel like a hundred years ago. Yeah. You look at, you know, the Canada Day lineup, uh, you know, Eric Sogard leading off, who's like obviously been having this like remarkable out of nowhere campaign. So that's a fun guy to watch right now. And, and he works a great plate appearance top the lineup. Guerrero, Guriel. Biggio. That's the future of the club in the heart of the order. You're watching those guys hit. Randall Gritchuk, the Blue Jays are invested on this guy. He's going to be around. And hey, he comes up with, you know, four RBI singles on Canada Day. Some signs of turning it around. The ball still comes off his bat. An extremely high rate of speed. Randall Gritchuk has three hits and three RBIs today. Randall Gritchuk has four hits and four RBIs today. What a day for Gritchick. He had the hardest hit ball in that game on Canada. And, uh, and hey, Glenn Sparkman started that game. There were some hard hit balls. And Randall Gritchick had the hardest hit one. They got Rowdy Tellez after him, a threat to leave the yard at all times. It's always fun to watch like a big slugger at the plate, you know, the big lefty masher at the plate. Then you got Teoscar Hernandez, who's an entertaining player to watch. And then Freddie Galvis, who goes deep twice in that game. Slips a drive to deep center. Hamilton going back. Turns. Gone! Galvis goes back to back with Tay Oscar, and it's four to nothing. Like you said, Danny Jansen, who is, you know, certainly struggling this year at the big league level and not producing offensively the way a lot of people thought that he would considering his minor league numbers, but a guy who still comes up with some big plate appearances. There he goes. Swinging a drive. That is fun to watch. No batting gloves. You know, he's got glasses. Like, it's an interesting lineup to watch right now, I think. Yeah, and that's really the first time that we've been able to say that uh, this year. I think so much of it coincides with Lourdes Gurriel Jr.'s hot streak because in the course of this Blue Jays rebuild, they have found some useful players like a Trent Thornton but they hadn't found a star anywhere. Yeah. And with Lourdes Gurriel Jr., who knows? I mean, he had one month, and we're halfway into his season, and he's had his struggles already this year, but you're seeing flashes of a player who could be a star, and that's pretty exciting. Yeah, let's have the Lourdes Gurriel Jr. conversation, because it's so hard to tell what is real with him. Like, when you talk about a hot streak, 
Like you're talking about like a six week hot streak. You're talking about like a month and a half now. And it's just not stopping. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. ties the game. Boy, does it feel good to be back. Lourdes points to the heavens as he crosses the plate with his first home run of the season. Three games since he's come back from Buffalo and a home run in each and every one of them. Next pitch is lined in the left field. That's a base hit. It's a four-hit day for Lourdes Gurriel. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. at the plate, and he jolts one high and deep out to left field. You can forget it. First pitch to Lourdes is hammered. Deep left field. Goodwin going back, looking up. It's gone. But you look at some of the peripheral numbers, right? And you look at a, a high batting average on balls in play, and you look at the fact that he's still not walking a ton, and the fact that he still expands the zone, and he still swings and misses a lot. I mean, he's just got such good bat-to-ball skills on pitches in the zone. He can barrel up baseballs that are all over, you know, different quadrants of the strike zone. It's not like, you know, he has this hole in this swing and, you know, the upper half of the zone or whatever. Like, he can get his bat around because he's got those long arms. He's got a really smooth, fluid swing. So he generates a lot of exit velocity like that and a lot of different pitches. But the discipline still isn't quite there and the patience isn't still quite there. And we've seen him, you know, have some really low lows at the plate to go along with these high highs. And it's kind of hard to look at the batting average on balls in play over these six weeks and say, well, that's going to continue. But you look at the amount of home runs that he's hitting. It's like, well, it, hey, yeah, you're going to have a great bad up on balls that you hit over the fence. So like, it's kind of just hard to gauge. Like surely he's not, you know, this, this, this good, but can he be pretty good? It looks like it, but you kind of have to see it over a lot more plate appearances. Without a doubt. And this is where it's still just exploratory and figuring out what's happening here with Guriel Jr. Yeah, to your point on the BABIP, it's been above 380 in May and in June. Yeah. That doesn't happen. I mean, you don't see any players doing that. So you know that his batting average is going to come down with it, the OBP, with it, the slugging. So that's fine. He's not going to keep this up. But he had 10 home runs in June. And even in today's power-filled game, you definitely don't have a lot of guys capable of hitting 10 home runs in a month. You just don't yeah. see that happen very often. So I think that that tells us something. Certainly, he's not going to hit 60 every year. I mean, that's that's <laughs> no one does that. So it's not a sustainable pace either. But you do know that he has the ability to go off and carry a team offensively for a month. And we didn't even know that a yeah. month ago. So that's something that we've learned and seen from Guriel Jr. that's pretty impressive. It's kind of remarkable to me that he's still getting pitches to hit because he really hasn't shown that he's always going to lay off of like the ball way below the zone, like, like the slider in the dirt or like the sometimes like the fastball in the other batter's box. You know, like he still takes some crazy swings that pitches their way outside the zone. But like maybe he's just going to be a really streaky hitter like that. And the question for me then would be, can you have a winning club? Like, can you have a contending club with a really streaky hitter like that? You know, it's, this is like an imperfect exercise, but over his two seasons now as a big leaguer, he's gone to 454 plate appearances. So not yet a full season if you're healthy, but I don't know, say you miss a month with an injury or something and maybe you're in and out of the lineup. Like you could say that's a full season for the purpose of this exercise. 113 games, 454 plate appearances, 860 OPS. And that's with the lows, right? And that's with the weeks in the majors where he was lost. 
So if you're that streaky and you, we all remember the multi-hit game streak that he went on last season, and now we're seeing something somewhat similar now, it all ends up in the aggregate looking pretty good. It's just as a club over the course of a season, can you ride those highs and, and lows and be okay? You can, without a doubt. I think with uh, that kind of production and yeah, to the point that you made there, that stat line is really impressive. Yeah. 296 average, uh, 527 slug with 25 homers. Like That's really, really good production. So I think, yeah, no matter how you get there, if that's the end result you take it, even if you go over a month, if you have hot streaks like the one he had and you end up at that line, you're happy with it. And it's a question of surrounding him with other players in that batting order. And the other thing is with that offensive production, if he's able to even come close to an 860 OPS, then he can stay in left field because that's great. You don't have to worry about him being a second baseman again. He can just stay in left and roll with that. Well, yeah, don't forget about the elite left field defense that you are getting. Don't forget about the fact that nobody can run on him. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like the assist numbers that he's put up, having played the outfield for a month and a half, are like absurd. Now he hits a ground ball fair down the third baseline and into left field. It goes off that short wall. Guriel picks it up. Good throw into second base on a hop. The tag by Biggio, and they got him. Voigt the lead off of second. The 1-0 pitch to Hicks. Swung on line into left field. The base hit. Guriel on it quickly. Gets it on a hop and comes up firing. Voigt runs through the stop sign and he is meat cake. Luke Voigt thrown out by six steps by Lourdes Guriel Jr. to end the inning. And he's going to find a hole. Holt is getting the wave. Here comes the throw from Guriel to the plate in plenty of time. What a play by Lourdes Guriel Jr. That's his fifth outfield assist. He's playing in his 26th game in left field. And of course, like teams are testing him and saying, oh, okay, so you've got this middle infielder didn't work and you stuck him in left, we're going to run on him. Man, guy makes great throws from left, like StatCast measuring them up over 90 miles an hour, and they're accurate. They are on a line. Like he's, they're not, you know, dragging Danny Jansen like way up the first or third baseline. It's such a contrast compared to, say, you know, the middle of May when he was in the minor leagues, and at that point he hadn't hit in the majors. He was hitting okay in the minors, and he basically had the yips. So he mm-hmm. wasn't throwing well at all. So you had a second baseman who couldn't throw and wasn't hitting. Now you have a left fielder who's crushing it defensively and offensively. I mean, that's a huge turnaround in a short period of time. It's kind of the the success story of the Blue Jays season to this point. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum in terms of like plate discipline uh, and in terms of patience, I would say is Kevin Biggio who is having just remarkable plate appearances for a guy who's going through like his first uh, 30-some games. What is he at now? 32 games as a big leaguer. His first 32 games seeing major league pitching. And you just like, you look at some of the, you know, the chase rate, which is super, super low, the not expanding the strike zone. Seeing a first pitch ball in more than half of his plate appearances as a big leaguer. Wow. As a rookie, right? Like as a guy you, you would expect to be getting challenged. He got himself into two three zero counts in that Kansas City Royals series that was just played on Canada Day weekend, and he got a green light in both of them from Charlie Montoya, which tells you how much this Blue Jays coaching staff like trusts them, right? That he's looking in and getting the sign of like you're three zero, you can have a green light, rookie. Three zero green light, and that's a base hit down the right field line. Two more runs will score. Biggio on his way to second, and in there with a double. Well, as good as Kevin has been. 
He just continually impresses you with his at-bats. A 3-0 count. Veteran hitters will overswing on a 3-0 count. Not Kevin Biggio. You've played 32 games. Like That's how much they trust his approach and his discipline and his pitch recognition and his ability to make really good contact on pitches that are in the zone because he is pairing that discipline with a really high hard hit rate. Is it going to continue forever? Who knows, right? Like, is there a slump coming for him? Maybe does, you know, do pitchers adjust to him just like they're going to adjust to Lourdes Gurriel Jr.? Sure. But you can be so, so encouraged with just the plate approach that you've seen from Kevin Biggio. Yeah, without a doubt. And if Gurriel is the biggest success story this season, I think Biggio is probably number two on that list for the Blue Jays. And, you know, both young potential fixtures for this lineup. So you look at the production in essentially his first month in the major leagues, he already has 20 walks. I mean, you prorate that, which is a dangerous game, but if you were to prorate that over a full season, you're looking at 100 walks on base of 370. He's showing you some power. He's showing you some speed, some versatility. I mean, this is this is really the dream. And if you've got someone who's already drawing these walks when you're a rookie, we saw with Vlad Jr., umpires don't necessarily give rookies a lot of borderline calls. You have to imagine that as Biggio gets more comfortable, learns the strike zone more, and umpires maybe start to give him a few more calls on the edge, then that could even increase. So again, that's an optimistic scenario. There are also scenarios where he steps back and, and can't sustain this, but there's a lot to be encouraged by with Biggio. And for a guy who maybe a year and a half ago, we were like, yeah, it's you know, kind of hard to see what he really becomes. Yeah. Now it's easy to project him. I mean, I think at this point, he's starting every game for the rest of this season and into next season. And you just, if you're the Blue Jays, you hope that he continues on this pace because it's the pace of a, of a very good major league player. You mentioned Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in there as well. And that's a guy who has stepped into the big leagues and not quite replicated the production that he put up in the minor leagues. Although that was, that's like an insane standard to hold the, like, hey, just show up in the big leagues and walk more than you strike out and like, barrel everything at 120 miles an hour. Uh, still hitting the ball awfully hard. I think he's just adjusting to major league life. I think we all expect that Next year is going to be a big year for Vladimir Guerrero Jr., but you know, just now that he's gotten over this year of you know getting to the majors and learning it and this and that and the other, but there very well could be like a three week stretch coming for him in the second half where like he goes bananas. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising to see that at all. Uh, he's going to go to the home run derby. Maybe that's what he needs. Maybe he needs a little home run derby. Maybe it's like the opposite of like right. the tired narrative of like, oh, guys, go to the home run derby and screw up their swings. Yeah, he hit like two home runs in June. So like maybe this is actually what he needs to to go on a second half tear. And you could easily imagine a second half tear from Vlad Jr. I mean, I've been saying it constantly and I still just would never be surprised when you have that kind of power yeah. and that kind of plate coverage to see him go off um, and that kind of plate discipline. So clearly, you know, as you're saying, he hasn't replicated the numbers that he had in the minor leagues. And he went for, I think it was a few weeks there without a home run before homering recently. But you just know that the talent is there, and it's easy to forget he's 20 years old. Kevin Bijou and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. are like four years older than Vlad. <laughs> and, and Vlad still has an OPS plus as we record this of 103, so he's still been better than the league average. And that's a league that includes Mike Trout and Lourdes and all these Mookie Bats, all these great hitters. So he's holding his own, and there's room for him to do a lot more than that. Yeah, he walks a lot, right, is kind of the thing that's propping that up. The, I guess the expectations were so high, yeah. right? So, like, if he was just a regular prospect who came up to, you know, and, and just had this, you know, 750 OPS, this, like, you know, above 100 OPS plus, I mean, you'd be like, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. welcome to the big leagues, right? It's because he's the number one prospect in baseball, and there's so much potential there. But, yeah, 
just 20 years old, yeah. you know, like he's probably still growing into some of the power that he'll feature, right? Like even just as a human being, like I know he's already like very, very large, but he'll probably gain some muscle over the years. He's still 20. <laughs> he's, you know, he might still be, you know, packing on some pounds, right? Like he's going to get bigger at third base. It's been hit or miss, you know, there, there's been some plays that uh, maybe as Wilner would say, a little too much chalance. Or not enough shallots, or whatever right. he would say. I can't. The only Wilner. It's not the that. right amount of shallots. Whatever it is, <laughs> the sh- on, on the shallots level, not where you want to be. No. That's what this season's about, man. Is breaking these guys into the major leagues and and giving them like learning experiences and letting them grow and letting them experience things for the first time. Like it can, it can only help them going forward if they kind of get their errors out of the way and they get their learning experiences out of the way. Now, uh, you know, I think you're seeing that from a lot of these young players. Aside from. Vladdy, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Biggio. I mean, obviously those guys seem like fixtures. And Boba apparently, hopefully, could be up here with them relatively soon, which would add to that group. But beyond those guys, do you see anyone who's along with them on that level of, hey, these are really core pieces with this team? No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a, it's a question of, like, is Teoscar Hernandez, like, a part of this team? Long term, you know, like is Randall Grichuk. I mean, Randall Grichuk is like contractually, so probably, but like, how do those guys kind of fit? And that's what's kind of interesting, right? Is the guys who are, you know, kind of in their, you know, you don't want to say that they're in their primes, but kind of, you know, late 20s, right? Like, kind of getting there. Uh, you know, how are those guys going to fit on this team going forward? Then, you know, you think about a guy like Anthony Alford, right? Yeah. Like, how does he fit into that outfield mix? Look, if Lourdes Griel Jr. is like your left fielder now, uh, right now you got Teoscar Hernandez playing center and Randall Grichuk playing right. Where's Anthony Alford fit in? How and because he's kind of part of this rebuild, maybe more so than like Teoscar Hernandez would be long term. I think if Alford can hit, then he'll force his way into the yeah. mix somehow because there will always be enough injuries or that they can trade someone. But to this point, Alford hasn't hit enough to push his way into the major leagues and. Some of that was injury. Some of that was the slow start he had last year and the confidence issues he tried to regain and, and struggled with that. And he just, to this point, hasn't completely hit. So it's no longer really a question of reps. He's had his chances. I know he had the late start because of the football career, but he has a chance here to earn his way to the major leagues, and it just it isn't happening right now. I just wonder if he just needs a little bit of big league rope and just like see how it goes, right? Like At some point, don't you kind of have to like test him in the majors like don't you just give him like a month of everyday reps in the majors and just kind of see if he can do it that's one idea i mean i guess it would depend on what they're seeing from him what he's working on the minors if he's pretty much a finished product down there and they've done all the tinkering they can do then by all means bring him up if there's still more you know offensive tinkering i mean we've seen his swing is not exactly a conventional swing he's got a leg kick in there he's got a lot of moving parts if they're working on something probably the minors would be the best spot for that but you could imagine that at some point, try it out in the majors, see what happens. Getting to a point now where guys like Brandon Drury, Billy McKinney, uh, almost kind of outside looking in a little yeah. bit with the Blue Jays lineup, no? I think so. I mean, that's a year, nearly a year since they've joined the organization. Yeah. And we just haven't seen a ton. We've seen glimpses and flashes from both of those guys. And in both cases, they have options. So it's not like there's a huge rush to reach some determination on them. But certainly they haven't impressed. They haven't reached that level of, of looking like a potential core piece for this team.
Sock the Letters brought to you by the all-new 2019 Ford Ranger featuring terrain management system, which has four selectable drive modes, normal, grass, gravel, and snow, mud and ruts, and sand bed. That's legit. That is, wow, versatility from the Ford Ranger. When you're out there driving on sand, the Ford Ranger can help you out with that. So the first half of this pod was kind of the, the positive half, and I feel like the back half is going to be more of the negative half because we got to talk about the pitching. And when you talk about positives with this team, yes, look at that lineup. And even just recently, the Blue Jays scoring a lot more runs than they were earlier in the season. The plate appearances have looked a lot better. Pitching continues to be an issue both in terms of the quality of pitching that the Blue Jays currently uh, feature and the lack of pitching, uh, not only at the big league level, throughout the organization. We could start with Aaron Sanchez, who is just about as lost as a pitcher can look right now on a big league mound. I mean, just if something bad can happen for him, it will, (laughs) you know? And he even alluded to this the other day after his start. It's like just falling behind hitters, really. I mean, that's kind of been my my thing all year. Is you know, limp, the, the free passes. Those always kind of find a way to come back and haunt me. You know, after after two guys get on, a couple hits here and there through the holes, and and they're back in the game. We just got to be better. If you're like in the the shoes of the Blue Jays' decision maker right now, Ben, what do you do with Aaron Sanchez for the rest of this season? Well, it would depend on a few things, and my understanding is that Sanchez wants to start, so that would be one of them. Mm -hmm. Then it's not working right now. That's pretty clear. And a lot of that has to do with the ineffectiveness of his fastball, which right now is getting hit at a 328 clip when he hits it, 511 on base, 597 slugging. So those are like Bonds-level numbers (laughs) when Sanchez throws his fastball. Which is not good. He's not pitching to Barry Bonds every play to appearance. <laughs> every time. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't have that happen. With the 5'11 OBP, it's not good. And it really does go to show that hitters can square up 95. I mean, sometimes you hear that and it just sounds like a cliche, but Sanchez is throwing the ball still 94 miles an hour up to 97, and hitters are squaring it up. So it's not working. So I don't know. If there's some way that he can throw his curveball more, I would want to see that from him if I was the Blue Jays because... It's an effective pitch. It's an elite spin rate pitch. And that would be one potential way to get more out of him. I wouldn't be opposed to the idea of telling him to try airing it out for three innings and having Sam Gavilio ready. And part of that comes down to his struggles the second time through the order. It's been a rough spot for him. So basically, I would be open to tinkering with Aaron Sanchez. I would, I'm would. i not looking to trade him. If I'm the Blue Jays, like, no, you're you not going to get anything. You yeah. can't. So there's no point to trading Aaron Sanchez right now. So basically, you're trying to get him on track. So I still think that given that you're not trading him until at least the offseason, there's nothing wrong with having him in the rotation as long as it's not wearing on him mentally, as long as there's still something that, you know, Pete Walker, Charlie Montoyo, Ross Atkins, that they can find something to say, hey, Aaron, try this and then try it. That's what I would do, but I don't know exactly what that potential solution is. Aaron Sanchez hates the idea of being a reliever right now. And you know what he would might hate even more is your proposition to take him back to the piggybacking days of Lansing. Right. Because <laughs> he hated that when that was going down. And now you're telling him to go back to like the we're talking Justin Nicolino, Noah Syndergaard days. Yeah. Remember those the whole plan with those guys? That's what you're thinking they should do with now Aaron Sanchez and Sam Cavilio. Do you have any better suggestions than that? I mean, it's, my it's my suggestion is one that he will also hate, yeah. and that's taking a little little trip to the IL. 
uh, to get over any finger issues that he might be dealing with right now. And he's like, he's not sharing any of these going through and he hates talking about that. But yeah, I mean, you know, pretty clearly the ball is not moving the way that it once did. The velocity's like down a little bit, not substantially a little bit, but I think mostly it's the movement on his pitches that are allowing them to get hit the way they are, right? Like it's just the sinker just isn't dropping like it used to. Right. And his stuff just isn't as effective as it once was. So that suggests to me that, you know, maybe there's something going on with a grip issue, right? Or maybe there's something going on with his release. And you got to remember, you know, with all the finger issues that Aaron Sanchez went through over the last couple of years, he's like tweaked his delivery and tweaked his grips and like changed things. Like he might not even really remember how he threw the ball in 2016, right? Like he's been through so many changes. So he might just kind of be searching for it or he might be going out there at less than full health, right? And I know it's a point of pride for him this season to make every start and he has. That's a victory in and of itself for Aaron Sanchez. When you look at the last couple of years that he had coming off of that 2016 season, it is a bit of a you know a bit of a small victory that he's uh, I don't have in front of me, but you know he's definitely made he must have made the second most starts on the team to Marcus Stroman. I mean, he is you know out there every five days taking the ball, and that's not something that he was able to do the last couple of years. So. He wouldn't want to go on the IL, but I wonder if, like, a couple weeks, just get, you know, rest up anything that's bothering you, get a mental reset, just a mental break from the grind of the season and watch some film and tinker with some things and work on some stuff in bullpens and try to get back to a place where you're just more confident in what you're taking to the mound. That makes some sense. Sanchez tied with Stroman, 18 starts as we record this, for the most on the team. Right. There so, was a time where Blue Jays fans were like, man, can this guy just pitch? <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. And he has pitched, but just not well at all. And, you know, you look at just some of the numbers. He's been hit hard. He's allowing home runs. He's walking more than one batter for every two innings pitched. And he's not striking guys out. So it's not just a product of, oh, every time, you know, he walks a guy, he comes around to score. Every time he allows a ground ball, it finds a way through the infield. His FIP is 5.5. Like He's just not been effective this year. And there is a chance that the Blue Jays won't get anything for Aaron Sanchez. I mean, I mean long-term. Like This might be yeah. one of those Josh Donaldson situations where it just kind of peters into way less than it could have been. You know, who, who knows what happens with Merriweather? That's another topic. But right. you know, with Stroman, it's pretty clear that if he stays on this course, they're going to get something, or they're going to have the chance to get something. They should. With Sanchez, I don't know if they're going to get that chance. And... That's a big responsibility now for Pete Walker and for Atkins in the front office to try to find something, basically find which pitches are effective. How can he use his pitches to be more effective? Because he's probably not going to gain velocity at this point. And the grip issues that he's battled for years now probably aren't going to go away. And that's a really, really important thing for a pitcher. When you think about grip and you know the advantages that pitchers get when they use uh, pine tar on their fingers, like that helps you spin the ball. It helps yeah. you grip the ball and command the ball. And Sanchez right now is kind of going in the opposite of that where he has less grip than he would ideally have. That's what he's got to start doing. He's got to start loading the ball. That's what he's got to do. He's Let's see to, it. <laughs> Honestly. He's got to get that glob of sunscreen and resin and pine tar on the old forearm or on the brim of the cap. Foreign substance. <laughs> Go for it. Um, but yeah, you make a, a good point that, you know, yeah, the Blue Jays have a lot of time and effort 
and resources invested in Aaron Sanchez. Like since they drafted him almost a decade ago, right? Like they have, you know, poured a lot of development into him. They were very cautious with his innings load and, and his workload. And, you know, you're like, remember the days of, you know, like we were thinking about his innings and stuff, right? So like, Anything that the Blue Jays do with Aaron Sanchez going forward, like they aren't going to make any rash decisions. It's not just going to be like, all right, you're going to the bullpen. If that decision is made, like it's going to be really well thought out, and he's going to have to buy into it, and probably his agent's going to have to buy into it, and like everybody's going to have to, like, not to use the C word, collaborate on this decision. Like it's not just going to be, a, oh, let's just try this and see if it works, because you don't want to screw him up anymore. The Blue Jays are really have a lot invested in him. Part of that, like you mentioned, the Blue Jays would love to get something for him at some point, and they'd love to spend these, basically the next 12 months, they have 12 months remaining with which to get yep. something for him, right? So they, they've got 12 months to fix him up and get him back into an asset that somebody will be willing to pay something for again, because I can't even imagine that they're, who's trying to trade for Aaron Sanchez right now. His value as an asset is that it's Nadir. You got to hope this is the Nadir. You got to hope that you can build that thing back up. So part of it's as an asset. Part of it's because I think people in Blue Jays organization genuinely want him to succeed. Anybody who's been around him over his career knows like he's a very passionate individual. Like he's a good person, man. Like he's a good guy to to talk to about the game. He's a guy who really cares about his career and works on his craft. And like him and Pete Walker have a, a tight relationship over the years that is like. Uh, subsisted through regimes of you know Blue Jays management, so there's so much invested in this. I understand the thought process of putting him in the bullpen, which is kind of what we're dancing around here. But I just don't think that now is the right time. And I just you know maybe you revisit that in the off season. You say, hey, you got one more year to go before free agency. Maybe it makes the most sense for you to try to make give this a go as a high leverage reliever. You benefit because maybe you're going to end up getting a pretty decent contract out of it in free agency. We benefit because we get this you know reliever who hopefully can come in and air it out and throw with a bit more velocity. And now you're healthy and you're not putting as much stress on your fingers as often. And da 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 da. I just don't think that a decision to put him in the bullpen right now is going to be made rashly. Yeah, I agree, and nor should it. And I don't think that the needs of the major league club should really impact that even as they try to patch together a rotation right now if you had to you could call up a Thomas Pannone or find ways to get through the innings of the season so I think you're really focused on Sanchez and trying to build him up into something and thankfully the Blue Jays are at a point now where other teams around the league they don't care about his ERA they don't care about the fact that you know he's allowed x number of hits really it's such a granular commodity that they're looking for they're looking for guys who can get swing and miss with a curveball who can get swing and miss with a fastball who have command and right now Sanchez is only has one of those things which is the curveball no command and no fastball and I don't think he's probably ever going to be a pinpoint command guy but if they yeah. can get his fastball back or get him to use his curveball more then maybe you have the ingredients that another team would say hey we'll take this and try to turn it into something different than what he has been giving the Blue Jays you throw him out there and you let him continue pitching that's just what you yeah. keep doing now every five days it might not look great all the time but like you said there's still flashes of something in there it's just not the time to give up on a guy like Aaron Sanchez Marcus Stroman on the other hand continues to just pitch lights out just being great he's going to go to his first all-star game here and in a couple of weeks, um, one of the better starting pitchers available on the, the trade market. Marcus Stroman, 30 days from now, not going to be a Toronto Blue Jay unless something insane happens. I agree. And I think that he is probably their best commodity at the trade deadline over Ken Giles. If you're acquiring Ken Giles, 
I don't know if there's a team out there that's acquiring him to be their closer. You're probably acquiring Ken Giles to like be your eighth inning guy, right? Or come in and throw 100 miles an hour in the eighth, like as you try to build your nuclear bullpen for the playoffs. So you're just getting a lot more out of Marcus Stroman. So like, I just think as the Blue Jays head to the trade deadline, kind of the power rankings of the value of their trade pieces, Marcus Stroman, Ken Giles, Cliff, <laughs> oh, and, yeah. and then like Daniel Hudson, Freddie Galvis. Yeah, and maybe Smoke is in that group, yeah. you know, depending on on that. But, you know, historically, you don't see teams trade uh, first baseman for a ton at the trade deadline. No. Galvis, yeah, could be a useful piece, potentially. Hudson, I, I think he'll be traded. I think Hudson will, would be an interesting uh, pickup for someone who's doing pretty well. You can get you a Corey Copping, exactly. maybe a, a Jacob Wagus back. That will be the exact same deal that will happen. They'll get someone's 20th best prospect for Daniel Hudson. That's a nice piece of business by the Blue Jays picking him up at the end of spring, right? You know, and, and bring him in. He's been like really under the radar, like a crucial part of that bullpen. Without a doubt, he's been key. I, you know, Joe Biagini, another guy who's been pretty solid, kind of comparable to Hudson and might draw a little bit of interest. But ultimately, it's Giles and Stroman. And I agree. There's a huge gulf between those guys and everyone else. And really, when you look at the league-wide trade market, I think Giles and Stroman are important pieces within that. And for different reasons. Stroman's a guy who can really help get you there. If you're a team on the edge and you know you need to replace your number five starter with a solid number three, Stroman could be your guy. Yeah. Whereas Giles could be an extra dynamic piece for a playoff team. Even a team like the Dodgers that knows they're going to be there, they could add Giles because in the World Series, you never have enough Ken Giles types. No. No, and I I do wonder if there's still some uncertainty from teams when it comes to Giles. Like, he's been great in Toronto, obviously, but I do wonder if, like, from an outside perspective, teams might say, okay, cool, like, you went to a team that might lose 100 times and pitched really well in, you know, Toronto where there's, like, zero media attention this year. Uh, like, teams haven't forgotten how things went in Houston. <laughs> no way. Right? Like, yeah. so if you're bringing him into, like, uh, New York or a Boston or whatever, right, and you're going to the playoffs and you got a lot of attention, you probably have some questions about how that might play out. Right. And regardless of what market size you're in, even if it's, you know, for argument's sake, Milwaukee, Tampa Bay, which probably would be fits for him on paper, then once you get to the World Series, which is the ultimate goal, then you're going to have all kinds of spotlights on you, even if you're playing in the trot. So, yeah, I, I think that there would be questions there. I think in a different way, there would be questions about Marcus Stroman. And I think that the, a team that was doing its due diligence would likely come to the conclusion that Stroman is a really intense competitor and someone who would do everything that he could to go out there and, and pitch well. But he's a guy who doesn't shy away from controversy. He mm-hmm. has He's very well known around the league, whether it's with Alex Cora or Dennis Eckersley or Tim Beckham. I mean, he has had a few run-ins over the years, and that would be a question that teams would ask. But ultimately, I think they'd come to the answer that Stroman's one of the best pitchers out there. Like he, how he runs the gamut of manager to broadcaster to shortstop there. <laughs> just like pissing off everyone. Oh yeah, no question. <laughs> and it doesn't, that's not the end of the list. That was just, you know, the names I came up with on the top of my head. So yeah, I think that there would be potential for that kind of a question. But let's face it, the Astros trader for Roberto Asuna last year and the questions around a guy like that were way worse and way more serious than, oh, oh Stroman's not afraid to chirp someone on Twitter. Talk about uncertainty with Roberto Osuna, a guy who like pitched in the minors, I guess, a couple times with the Blue Jays, right? But like hadn't pitched at a big league level and how long, like, it, you know, how were you supposed to know like where even he was at mentally, right? And you're going to bring him into this like pressure cooker of a playoff race and then the literal playoffs, uh, you know, on a team with like World Series aspirations after everything that he had been through that year, everything of his own creation mm. and of completely his own fault. But like that was a risk. 
Yes, it definitely was. And yet the Blue Jays got a pretty good return for that. You know, you could argue was it full value or not, but the Astros still were willing to pay a lot to get Roberto Asuna. And that suggests to me that other teams would have had similar interest if it wasn't Houston. And that, you know, as much as we heard from guys like Farhanzadi and Dave Dombrowski who said they weren't interested, I imagine that there would have been another GM or two who would have paid something pretty significant to get a closer of that caliber. I will mention that, you know, some people might look at Eric Sogard as a guy who might get traded. My understanding is that there's not really anything out there right now for Eric Sogard. Teams are, you know, pretty aware of what he is. Like, it's well established over his career. He's having a great year. Like, absolutely. And great clubhouse guy. And like, could be a good fit on like a National League club, play a couple positions for you. But there really isn't anything out there for him right now. It's just kind of a nice story for the Blue Jays this year. Uh, and that's about it because the Blue Jays like the rebuild is pretty much turned over, you know, like they're running out of kind of like the veteran assets that they would, you know, be able to trade away for packages or to, you know, try to inject youth into this team. That's why it's so crucial that they nailed the Stroman trade in particular. I mean, the, the, obviously the Giles one as well, but I think the Stroman one's the big one because, you know, controllable starter, all the reasons that we mentioned about why he's such an, uh, an attractive commodity at the deadline be great to get some pitching, be pretty good to get some pitching, but you can't really dictate what's going to be out there for you. Like it's possible that it's a position player return. And then the Blue Jays have to kind of pivot into, okay, this coming off season, how can we package some of these position player prospects to trade for young high upside pitching, which is a difficult thing to do because that is one of the most valuable commodities in this game. And the situations where teams are looking to sell those pieces or where teams are so desperate for position players that they are going to give up some of their uh, high upside pitching, it's rare. I agree. They can't afford to back themselves into a corner because if the pitching offers out there aren't good, then you take the position players. You know, mm-hmm. you just have to get talent because they still have enough time to move pieces around and adjust we're, we're not at the point where the Blue Jays need some finishing piece so they need to go out there and just add the best talent they possibly can they certainly do that's going to be it for us here at At The Letters that's Ben Nicholson Smith he's on Twitter at B Nicholson Smith our producers Amal Delich got him on Twitter at A-M-A-N-D-E-L-I-C my name's Arden Zwelling you can read us as always at sportsnet.ca we'll be with you from here until the end of the season both in writing at sportsnet.ca and here on At The Letters. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.